I'm joined today by my great friend James Larkin. I'm with Brian as well, of course, um, which is less exciting because Brian and I have been doing this together for a while. But James, you haven't been with us before. Thanks so much for joining us today. The what we'd like you to do, we always get people to introduce themselves because um, we sometimes struggle with that. Um, <laughs> and and then what I was keen uh, to do was uh, was just talk a little bit about this upcoming issue around the adjuvant pembrolizumab renal cancer space and actually what we can learn potentially from from the melanoma data that's come out previously. Okay, well, first of all, thanks for the invite. Um, introduction, I'm a medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden in London and I spend half my time treating melanoma and then the other half treating kidney cancer. And then I guess straight on to... Um, adjuvant pembrolizumab in kidney cancer well you know we have a press release at the moment at the time of uh, discussion so we don't know what the hazard ratio is and that's that's obviously a critical question um i guess in melanoma um we've had data now for three or four years for adjuvant treatment so that's basically stage three melanoma uh involved lymph nodes uh and i guess the first thing to say is there's a massive health warning here um, talking about melanoma and kidney cancer at the same time. And, and kind of, a you know, maybe or maybe not pertinent to that is the fact that targeted treatment in melanoma has a clear benefit uh, in the adjuvant setting. So that's BRAF targeted treatment um, with it look, what looked like uh, comparable hazard ratios uh, with checkpoint inhibitor therapies. So uh, we don't know, but I guess we're not necessarily anticipating you know, the kind of comparable efficacy, shall we say, in kidney cancer, given the experience of the last few years with adjuvant targeted treatment in kidney cancer. So that's mm -hmm. kind of one thing to say up front, I think. Do you want me to keep James, talking? To... You're going to ask me some questions. Go on. Yeah, James. I am, James. So the first question I wanted to ask there was, what is the absolute benefit of adjuvant pembrolizumab or nivolumab? Is it a progression-free survival benefit in melanoma or is it a survival? Uh, uh, is it just a progression-free or is it progression and overall survival? Yes, yeah, so this is the crux of it, I think. But if you, if you look at the hazard ratios for relapse-free survival, it's around about 0.5, uh, maybe slightly north of that, um, actually for targeted therapy and for checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And we don't yet have uh, evidence of an overall survival benefit in melanoma with about four years of follow-up, something like that. But there is a slight caveat to that in melanoma, and I'll just explain that, which is the sort of background in melanoma is that the first sort of modern uh, effective adjuvant treatment was actually ipi monotherapy at a dose of mm -hmm. 10 milligrams per kilogram so that's a higher dose than we're used to obviously and that trial which reported a few years ago now showed a benefit for relapse-free survival hazard ratio about 0.7 that kind of thing and a benefit for OS. This is in comparison with placebo. But the catch there was that trial was done at a time when there was no effective treatment for metastatic disease. Uh, and obviously that's changed now in melanoma. And of course, it's different in kidney cancer. So to some extent, some of the data we have at the moment was slightly extrapolating from that. But to date, we still don't have uh, evidence of OS benefit for, say, Nevo. And how long did the Pembroke. adjuvant... How long did the adjuvant IPOS benefit take to materialize? Uh, well, I, I, what I'm quoting there is is a sort of five year uh, okay. follow up. Um, so, so you know, but that's exactly it. You need to wait a long time. And, um, and James, what is the overall survival benefit for IP versus placebo? 
Yeah, it's around about the same. So we're talking about 0.7. So that's an absolute difference at five years. You're talking about sort of nine, ten percent, that kind of ballpark. Okay. And, and I think the other thing you have to say here is that IP10 uh, is a pretty toxic treatment. FDA approved yeah. it. The EMA didn't. And I think this this comes back to one of the critical issues for adjuvant treatment. And actually, while I think of it, you know, a, a big question we have in melanoma is that stage three melanoma is quite a broad church. You've got some people at one end, very high risk of relapse with stage four. You've got other people at the other end. They've had sentinel node biopsy. They've got microscopic um, nodal involvement. A lot of that, those people will be cured already. So what is that? Surgery. What is that range of risk? Well, it's it's from the kind of, uh, you know, a risk of uh, relapse of sort of 10 or 15 oh, percent wow. park at one end. And then at the other end, you'd be, you know, up to 50, 60, 70 percent. So, so I mean, you know, when you're sitting down with the patients and you're talking about a year of adjuvant treatment with potential side effects, um, you know, there's 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 it's quite a nuanced discussion, I suppose. Is yeah. what I, I mean, that James, would cover like T1 renal cancer through node positive, pretty much that range of risk. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, that's going to be one of the, bit, you know, the really interesting questions about the hazard ratio and subgroups uh, in Keynote right. 564. And it, I mean, for the record in melanoma, it looks like the hazard ratio for relapse free survival it, it is the same across the stage groupings, mm. um, which is fair enough. But on the other hand, the absolute risks in, in these patients with 3A melanoma are actually quite small. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, and again, this is quite a complex discussion to have with patients. I mean, if you've got someone with metastatic disease, you know, the, the, the downside of, 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 of the treatment not working is kind of very different from adjuvant when they might be cured already, obviously. Um, James, you might have spotted, but Brian and I are not melanoma experts. Um, <laughs> um, so just for my benefit here. So if he has a survival advantage of 0 0.7 in five year survival data, and are you quoting data of um, Ipi Nevo versus Ipi or Nevo versus Ipi um, with a, with the D, with the DFS. Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. Sorry for not being clearer, but there's a trial looking at Nevo a year of Nevo versus Ipi Checkmate two three eight, and the four year data were um, presented and published kind of six months ago at ESMO, something like that. And then the, so the hazard ratio for benefit for nivolumab versus Ipi is 0.7 on top of that, so a further benefit. Um, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a DFS benefit, not an OS yeah, benefit. Correct. Great. Um, and then for the, the, just, just for completeness, so hopefully it's clear, um, there's, there's a PEMBRO trial, which was done versus placebo in melanoma, and that the benefit there is the hazard ratio is about 0.5. So if you kind of do the maths on those, which obviously one isn't allowed to do, it's sort of <laughs> fairly consistent um, yeah. in terms of benefit. And again, so, actually, oh, no, sorry, I was just going to say for the record as well, this whole thing, Nevo versus Pembro, are they different in the melanoma world where we've used a lot of both? You know, the, the view is in terms of efficacy and safety, they're pretty similar. And a lot of it comes down to sort of, you know, frequency of administration, that kind of thing. Sorry, I interrupted someone. <laughs> um, so don't worry, you're allowed to drop as much as you like. James. It's, actually, it's actively encouraged. Um, so, James, the next question I'd like to ask then is, so it seems to me that it's reasonable to say that in, that um, both Pembro and Nivolumab have a disease-free survival advantage over four cycles of IPI, and the hazard ratio for survival of IPI versus placebo is about 0.7. So it's reasonable to give Nivolumab and Pembrolizumab to unselected patients in this group in melanoma, and the risk ranges from about 10% relapse to about a 60% relapse. Is that, is that a fair summary? I think that is a fair summary. Um, uh, I think the, the questions start coming, though, 
with checkpoint inhibitors in this lower risk group because the reality you know is that 90% of people I think will have a year of Nevo or Pembro without much trouble bit of itch bit of fatigue that kind of thing but I think we all know that sometimes even single agent therapy um, can cause major side effects and, and clearly some of them are irreversible um, and you know the irreversible ones endocrine I get I guess we're you know sort of you know, reasonably comfortable with, you can take thyroxine and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I quote a risk um, for adjuvant treatment with Nevo or Pembro of about sort of one in 200 or one in 300 of developing insulin dependent diabetes, which is lifelong, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that's real, you know, you can look it up, you can read the trials, that kind of thing. But, you know, when you say that to patients, uh, you know, that opens people's eyes, I think, quite significantly. I mean, having diabetes for the rest of your life is not trivial. And if you if you 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 know, if you may well have been cured already from melanoma, you know, that that, that sort of uh, makes people think of, you know, in practice. So, where's so the how many point? So you go, Brian, you go. Well, I was going to say, yeah, how many patients after that discussion will decline adjuvant therapy? And maybe, think... it de- maybe it depends on the risk, of course, but. Yeah, my, my, I mean, my experience, I mean, again, and I work at a, a tertiary centre, so we've, we've got a selected group of people sure. that we see. But, you know, most people who are coming in the first place want treatment, I think, is one thing to yeah. say. Everyone's very scared about yeah. their cancer coming back. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, most people, if you have the discussion, will say, well, I'd like the treatment um, that reduces that risk. Um, so, so not many, to answer your question, Brian. And the, the other thing, just to chuck in here, um, is the business about targeted therapy of melanoma. So actually, if you've got BRAF mutant melanoma, um, you can actually say, well, look, we've got immunotherapy or we've got targeted therapy. Right. And some people might say, well, actually, if the efficacy looks similar, which we think it is in the absence of head-to-head trials, I'll go for the targeted therapy, please, because if I get side effects, they'll probably go away when I stop the treatment. So, you know, that, that's a discussion that we have in melanoma that, you know, obviously we're not going to have in kidney cancer. Right. So do you, for gone. BRAF mutant melanoma in the adjuvant setting, do you actively encourage targeted versus immunotherapy or do you let the patient decide i mean i i'd like to hope that we we sort of you know talk about uh, all the options actually put them all on the table mm-hmm. there might be people who've got uh, you know contraindications for one reason or another sure. to, to one of the treatments all that stuff um but i think if you know other things being equal um we we would often in lower risk disease 3a melanoma that kind of thing um you know point people towards targeted therapy rather than immunotherapy for, for some of the reasons we talked about. And do James. you, or one more question, Tom, do you for yeah. patients who, uh, they're not BRAF mutants, so you're continu- considering adjuvant immunotherapy, do you actively discourage some patients, like a, a low risk patient who's 10% yeah. risk? Yeah, it's all about competing risk, I think. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, comorbidities, you know, um, right. you know, if someone had autoimmune disease or something like that, sure, sure, talking sure. About, you know, that would make you think, and, you know, the other side thing, and this isn't ageist, I'll say that now, is that if you've got someone who's relatively elderly and that, you know, their life expectancy might not be that great, you have to actually ask yourself the question, well, here's a year of treatment that you kind of might not need. Uh, why not just sit tight, monitor carefully? And then if the patient yeah. does develop stage four disease, then you could treat them later, which of course is one of the big questions here you know, sooner versus later, now or later, which right. we don't really know the answer to. So it sounds to me like, yeah, yeah, there isn't a tipping point where you say, I wouldn't be recommending below, you know, in, below that risk. Um, it sounds like you, you're happy. Is there other subsets within the forest plot which you look at and say, you know, 
I wouldn't be treating this population or that population um, based on other parameters? Or do you just accept the ITT trial and you give and you offer everyone therapy? Yeah, the forest plot's pretty consistent, I think, to answer that question. And and if there's some sort of hard cutoff we have in our heads, it's a one millimetre burden in the sentinel node, which is what was done in the trials. In other words, more than one millimetre evidence, less than one millimetre, uh, not really evidence. So if you're going to give it to someone who's less than one millimetre, you need to really be able to justify that pretty well. And I think I, I think the other stuff does come down to competing risk and comorbidities if you're going to give someone, you know, a year of this treatment, uh, you know. And, and, and some, sometimes, again, you know, people might not want to come up to hospital you know, every four weeks or every six weeks or whatever for a year to have a treatment they quote unquote may not need. So so it's a lot of different factors, actually. actually. James, in melanoma, you have a survival advantage and therefore you're giving these patients therapy if he has a survival advantage. And, it's be, and it sounds like Nemo and Pembro have substituted Ippy. If you didn't have that survival advantage, would you be as positive about treating these patients in the knowledge that there is this underlying risk of long term um, adverse events? I think it obviously is more nuanced, um, is all I would say. I mean, when you, when you come back to it and, you know, you've got uh, positive trials, presumably regulatory approval, uh, and, you know, remembering that RFS or slash DFS is the kind of the, the regulatory standard in this area, and you're having a conversation with someone um, about stopping them developing metastatic disease. I mean, there is quite a lot of pressure there, shall we say. Um, but I think inevitably, in the absence of OS data, it's it's more nuanced than the kind of extrapolation that that I've just talked to you about in melanoma. So I've sat on the fence slightly there. <laughs> I'm not sure what the answer was, but my question is: <laughs> Does has the attitude changed over time? So you've had uh, these treatments have been around three or four years, right? Has has have people's attitudes changed over time? Maybe you see that patient who has bad diabetes or has you know some bad outcome or. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think as these treatments um, kind of roll out and people get more experience, what tends to happen, I think, with single agent anti-PD-1 is you'll treat a few, you know, the first few patients, things will be well. And then I think what focuses people's mind is when they get a bad side effect, actually, yeah. um, practic practically speaking. I think the other kind of important point, it, it comes back to targeted therapy and this whole balance between BRAF and uh, inhibitors and checkpoint inhibitors. I think in the early days of the targeted therapy adjuvant trials, a lot of us thought that you'd get benefit for while you were on treatment that year of treatment and then the curves would come together again mm -hmm. for targeted therapy and that didn't happen so we've got sort of five-year data now for targeted therapy so that we can be confident that there's potentially durable benefit there and i think seeing that sort of push people more towards braf inhibitors in the situation where there's a choice um so so I, I think inevitably though to try and answer the question there's a lot of enthusiasm to start off with people get a bit more experienced and 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 yeah again it, it becomes more nuanced actually did any of your colleagues come to you james and said i've given this a few times i can see there is a benefit but you know what i think the risks outweigh the benefits are there any in the melanoma community who just say you know this is too risky for our patients I think there's a, a blanket statement. You can't really say that, you know, particularly if you're dealing with really high risk. Uh, I think the, the the lower risk ones, 3A, let's say, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing people talk about at meetings. But I mean, does anyone really say you shouldn't have treatment? No, I think people are just more circumspect, actually, uh, at least at least as uh, people I've come across anyway. And 3A is the 10 to 20 percent chance of relapse. 
yeah, that's that kind of ballpark, microscopic involvement at sentinel nodes. So it's a big group of patients because a lot of patients with melanoma will only have that. You know, they'll have their primary, they'll have a positive sentinel node. So in the clinic, actually, there's quite a lot of patients there. In years gone by, we'd be sitting in Chicago in a week and a half's time listening to Tony Chueri. Well, Brian might not be. Brian might be uh, somewhere else. But the rest of us would certainly be in the room um, listening, to, uh, listening to Tony present this data. We in the renal cancer community are not really used to um, these presentations. And what I'd like you to do, James, now is just um, highlight some of the pitfalls of data assessment in the adjuvant setting and some of the nuanced points, you know, maybe central review versus non-central review, um, randomization, risk population, event rate, maturity of data. What should the discerning um, oncologists be looking for when they're making a decision about whether they feel this is practice changing? Yeah, well, I think yeah, that hazard ratio number one. Um, but, you know, we know that that's positive already. And so let's assume that there's a there's a, a solid hazard ratio. I mean, the next thing I would always say is what's the inclusion criteria for the trial? Uh, how representative is that, you know, the patients in the clinic and especially subgroups? We talked a little bit about that already. Um, but again, kidney cancer, resected kidney cancer can be quite broad. So we're seeing the mm -hmm. same uh, level of hazard ratio in all the different subgroups scan review that's obviously important um that's something to think about um because uh, you know we all know um that sometimes we'll we'll see chest cts and that things are equivocal i think to sort of say that you need to biopsy everything to demonstrate metastatic disease is probably a bridge too far but i think you know that, that that's an important um variable do you think, think central radiology review is important well i can't hurt would be my uh would be my answer to that whether or not um it's mandated by regulators or others uh i think is a separate question but i assume but, there was central review in the study right but does it need public. to be your primary endpoint based on the central review yes do you think well, investigator assessed review is adequate or does it need to be a central review i think central review is better uh, I don't think that's a, a controversial statement. But then on the other hand, I mean, you know, there's, there, there's quite a big history of this, isn't this question, uh, investigator versus central. But, um, yeah. you know, um, I don't have a really strong view on it, Tom, but only, only to say that I think, you know, central is bound to be preferred if possible. But I'm not sure think, at the end of the day. Go on, sorry. I think it's probably mostly in the baseline scan where central review is going to find a lot of people who have little stuff which may or may not be METS, but that'll end up getting excluded from a trial. I think that's probably where it makes more of a difference. Yeah. But again, it's controversial. And what, I mean, the inclusion for the PEMBRO study, I mean, we know that that's public information. I don't know it offhand, but I assume it was T3 node positive and maybe high grade T2 or something. That's been typical. I don't know if, Tom, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a high risk population, clearly. And it was, uh, as you would imagine, it's uh, a clear cell population of patients with high-risk disease. Um, it includes um, a subset of, uh, of patients who have had a metastatectomy. Right. Um, so an M1 population subgroup of patients, obviously a small subgroup. Um, and and the, their risk may be the same, it may be different. Um, but essentially it's, um, it's a high-risk clear cell study as you would, and there's nothing super unusual about it. Um, James, when you first saw the melanoma data, the IPI data with a survival advantage, it probably caused a big stir in the community. Um, we're not going to see that because we have a progression-free survival advantage. What sort of data would you see 
um, as being, in your mind, practice changing, assuming the forest plot analysis, as is the case in melanoma, and we don't know the data, obviously, but assuming that's been the same throughout. And what sort of figures are you looking for to say, OK, that's that's really meaningful to me. I want to use this on my patients as soon as I can. Yeah, well, if we're talking about hazard ratio, I'm, I'm assuming that, that it's going to be 0.7 or better uh, or, or, there, or thereabouts. Um, and I, th I think it's pretty difficult to ignore that, actually, assuming there, there isn't any, anything unexpected um, in the data. Um, I mean, you know, we always want more mature follow up. But of course, we have to make decisions in clinic, uh, you know, in the early days. Um, and, uh, you know, just to come back to something you said, actually, uh, the stage four NED group, resected stage four. That's actually a pretty important question. Um, and, and for what it's worth with melanoma, there were a few patients like that in the trials and the hazard ratio looked the same as for stage three. So that, that'll be something else that'll be interesting to look at. And, and actually, while I'm talking, um, the, the other thing is this is clear cell, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it would be uh, remiss not to mention non-clear cell because, you know, it's 25% of people in the clinic. We don't have data um, or we won't have data if it's clear cell only. But, you know, all the patients with non-clear cell are going to be asking the same question. So there's a there's a gap there, I think, um, that we're going to probably need to deal with somehow. So two uh, two questions. Let's say the hazard ratio is 0 0.6, 0 0.7. Obviously, no survival yet. The tolerability is as expected. How will you apply it in practice? Will you say, okay, anybody who is eligible for the trial, whatever that may be, or will you focus it towards high risk given the melanoma experience and the toxicity and whatnot? I think I'd have the discussion with everybody um, um, who fits the bill, as it were, in, yeah. in terms of the trial. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's going to be a well-tolerated treatment. We know that already. I don't, I don't think there's going to be any surprises there at yeah. all. So, would, uh, you know, the question sort of is, you know, when would you not give it? I think, as, yeah. assuming the hazard ratio is solid. And it might come back to some of the stuff we talked about um, for melanoma, comorbidities, age, risk, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, you know, and how about non-clear cell? Would you give it to a non-clear cell patient? Uh, well, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, and, you know, and assuming you've got approval and reimbursement, you know. You, yeah, let's assume it, that. Let's yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be data free, isn't it? Yep. So then you're going to end up having <laughs> to extrapolate from the metastatic experience. Right. Where we know it's active, but less active, at least than say papillary, et cetera, less active in chromophobes. So you're yeah. doing a lot of extrapolation. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of extrapolation. Uh, you know, no doubt about that at all. But um, you know, I, I think again, if you if you can access it and you've got someone with high risk papillary, would you would you not treat them? Um, I, I actually, I, you know, I think if they understood all of that stuff, I'd, I'd be prepared to do that in principle. I don't have a massive problem there, shall we say? James, got a last question for you. Um, duration of follow-up on these trials, what happened in melanoma? We've seen in metastatic clear cell kidney cancer, we've seen hazard ratios for the VEGF-TKI immune therapies for survival drift um, from 0.5 to 0.6, still a massive difference, fantastic results. Um, in melanoma, did you also see the hazard ratios? Were the early hazard ratios better? That, and will we get the best results now? And what sort of follow-up for DFS do you think is relevant? Because some people could argue if the, the follow-up is really short, all you're actually doing is just treating early metastatic disease. Yeah, all great questions. Um, so the, the, um, the, the hazard ratios for melanoma stayed pretty um, constant with follow-up, you know, moving around a little bit, but not too much. I think 
the business about early metastatic disease, I mean, we know that's an issue in kidney cancer with some patients they have got metastatic disease. We're not just picking it up. So, you know, I, I think we're obliged, um, you know, to, to, to have decent duration of follow-up. And I mean, unless there's some reason not to, I mean, you know, I think we should be seeing five-year data that i mean there's there's all sorts of interesting questions you know one of which is um is is it better to treat in the adjuvant setting or not uh you know are we curing some patients with checkpoints and inhibitors with metastatic disease etc etc and I, I i don't see how you can get any traction on those questions without having mature follow-up in the trials actually so uh, my last question and tom i'd like to say i think we're asking better questions for a disease we don't know anything about so we may want to we may want to shift our <laughs> focus to melanoma, but anyway. We could do a ovarian cancer next week, Mark. <laughs> you have long-term follow-up in melanoma, so that was my question. Delaying versus curing you know, a proportion of patients. Is it the thought in melanoma that you're actually curing a fraction of patients, call it 10%, as opposed to just delaying, or can you say? Oh, we're talking about metastatic disease, Brian. No, 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 melanoma in the adjuvant setting. So is the thought that, yeah, we're actually curing that extra 10% of patients yeah. that we wouldn't have? Yeah. 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 Well, that's what that's what we think. You know, if you, if you look at distant metastasis, free survival in the trials and, and various other things, it's all pretty consistent, basically. Yeah. So I think we think we're curing people. Yes. To answer yeah. that. Um, Brian, question for you. Um, you've been around the block a few times. What are you <laughs> what are you looking for in the data set when it comes out in a week's time? What sort of numbers, what duration of follow up? Um, what would pra- what would be practice changing for you? Do you need to see an OS curve, too, as well? What, what's going what's gonna, to what's gonna float your boat? I mean, I think, you know, as we've talked about, I think we're expecting to see DFS hazard ratios in the 0.6.7 range, just based on how the trial was designed, I assume. We're not going to see overall survival, and I don't know if they'll even show those curves, but I wouldn't expect them to look different. We'll see the tox profile we expect from single-agent Pembro. So I'd be interested in, in those numbers, but in, like, the forest plot and the subsets, you know, certainly resected M1 disease, you know, and lymph node positive disease, you know, have a very high risk. I could get my head around as it gets lower risk. You know, I think that's going to become a little more of an interesting question. Um, and again, I don't know that we'll ever see OS given we have, you know, at least four regimens that extend OS in the metastatic setting, if not more. So I think, I think it'll be as expected and I think it'll be widely adopted. You know, the question is what happens over time and will the other trials also be positive? And we don't have the targeted therapy option like they do in melanoma. James, I've got a last paradox that I wanted to put to you. In metastatic disease, in good risk patients, it looks like immune therapy does not outperform sunitinib as it currently stands, which is why... For survival. Yeah. For survival. So ipinevo not outperforming sunitinib. However, it now and clearly in the adjuvant setting by almost definition, those patients are are super good risk or good risk disease. And yet we are seeing, or potentially we're seeing this DFS advantage for for immune therapy. Um, So the biology points us towards immune therapy working in more aggressive disease, but now in this early setting, it looks like we have immune therapy working very well, but we know sunitinib has not worked well previously. How do you pull that together? I can't. It's it's a it's a it's a great question, but I mean, you know, may, maybe one way, and I'm speculating, is to say that in the in in the adjuvant setting, intrinsically, you know, maybe the biology is determined in, in individual patients in terms of sensitivity to drugs, uh, rather than it being something to do with the disease progressing and and things changing as you go along. But no, 
I can't answer it. And um, it's it's pretty striking, actually, that the if you compare with melanoma, that you've got this benefit for adjuvant treatment um, with targeted therapy, whereas we know targeted therapy can work quite well for metastatic kidney cancer, but it was a real struggle in adjuvant trials to show any benefit. I, you know, I, I can't I can't answer it. Sorry. Well, James, thank you very much indeed. Brian, last question from you. We'll call it there. And uh, no, let's call. This was great. I learned a lot. Appreciate uh, setting the stage for the data next week. Yeah, James, it was terrific. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. All Take care, gentlemen. See you, soon. see you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.